0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to West Meadows. Stay with you. Join us on site or online. We're glad that you are with us. And as we've been talking about, this is the start of Christmas at West Meadows. Uh, and today is the beginning of a four week period of time we refer to as Advent. And Advent is this season of anticipation and preparation. And there's something I have been anticipating for quite a while right now that I've been hearing a lot about, but I can tell you for a fact that seeing is better than hearing. And that is all of the beautiful decorations (laughs) that have gone up over this past week. And so let's just take a moment right now and thank our volunteers for all the work that went into that. Uh, Alicia McIsaac and a team of people I know our youth were involved in it as well. Uh, wonderful, wonderful job! Thank you for enriching the season of the year force through that form of worship that exists. And if you've been around West Meadows for a little while, you may also have been anticipating the return of this guy, right? <laughs> this guy. There we go. Somebody was anticipating the return of this guy. You know, Rudy the Red Nose. There we go. We can turn the lights on. This is helpful. Because if the lights were to go out in the sanctuary, I can safely guide you to an exit now (laughs) as we go. So, so, uh, anyways, we'll turn that off so you're not distracted because my eyes are up here. So, let's turn that off. There we go. Uh, And here's some more good news for you. Something else to add to your anticipation this season. I've decided that every Sunday this Christmas, I'm going to bring a new Christmas sweater with me of varying degrees of ugliness (laughs) that come along. So whether you're going to join us on-site or online, come on back and make sure you don't miss uh, each week's fashion show as Pastor Mark shows off his Christmas sweaters. So... (laughs) But we know the real good news. The real thing we're anticipating during Advent is the arrival of Jesus Christ, right? Emmanuel, God with us. And over the next four weeks, we're going to reflect upon aspects of that story because in that story we learn and we're reminded that Jesus is our hope. Amen? And hope is here. Hope is here. And that's how it all starts. The whole story begins with this great pronouncement of hope and with this great promise of hope as well. You see, when we go back to the beginning of the story of Jesus' arrival, the first thing that we sometimes forget about is that God had been silent for 400 years. God had not spoken to his people. He had sent no prophets. He had had no signs amongst the people. And that 400-year and that gap is, is what we find between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this 400 years of silence. But then, but then an angel appears to Mary and speaks of this gift of hope. Mary, you're going to give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. And that name Jesus means he saves, because Jesus will save his people from their sins. And then nine months later, to the shepherds, these angels declare a message of hope. Shepherds, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And this is good news for all people. And then the shepherds rush off to go see the Christ child. And they are moved to expressions of hope. As they praise and they glorify God. And they went out through the town telling everyone that they could find what had happened. And the good news and the hope that they were experiencing See, the arrival of Jesus comes with this pronouncement of hope. It comes with this promise of hope. But then there's this pause. There's this pause that really nobody hoped for. Do you ever think about that? There's all this excitement that happens around the first Christmas. There's all this build-up to the first Christmas, and then nothing. It just fades Maybe you've experienced some of that in your own Christmas celebrations in the past. There's this thing called post-Christmas letdown. Maybe you've experienced this where there's weeks and weeks of anticipation. Weeks and weeks of building up and resourcing and, 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 and investing towards this moment. And you anticipate the gifts and the, the food, the decorations, the family. And, there's, and the reward centers of our brain just get flooded with dopamine and this, like that pleasure hormone. And it is exciting. And it is happy and joyous. And... And then it's over. The gifts are opened, The the food is eaten. The tree goes down. Everything goes back in the box. And all we're left with is the cold of January. You know, there's this pause. This pause that happens in the external sources of hope that we focus upon. And, And when they end, what are we left with? There are some psychologists who believe that this post-Christmas letdown is one of the biggest catalysts to New Year's resolutions. The idea being, if I've had all this external sources of hope that didn't last, and it faded and it's gone, all I'm left with now is what I can find within myself. And so New Year's resolutions tend to have to do with with resolving things within myself. And I kind of wonder, did the shepherds experience a post-Christmas letdown? Now I'm not suggesting they went out and joined a gym or started a keto diet or learned how to knit afterwards as part of their letdown. But how did they handle the pause? You see, that first Christmas was the happiest, most excited that they had ever been. That was the most hope they'd ever felt at one time in one place in their entire lives. And then there was the pause. And, and the pause lasted a day. And then they go back to their, their fields. <clears throat> and then the pause lasts a week. And they get back into routines again. And then the week turns into a month. And the month turns into a year. And eventually the year turns into a 30-year pause. That's a long pause. That's a long time to hold on to the hope of the pronouncement and the hope of the promise. Because we're not really told what happened to the shepherds. We're just told there's all this celebration, excitement, this buildup, and then nothing. But here's the thing. They knew something had happened. They knew something had happened, even if it felt like nothing had changed. Because in reality, everything had changed. Because in reality, hope was coming. And in fact, hope had arrived. And throughout this whole series, the next four weeks, I want to remind us that true hope is not found in the things out there. True hope is found in Jesus Christ. And where Jesus is, hope is. Because hope is here, and hope is for all people. Amen? And so we begin by looking at a passage that will emphasize this for us. A passage found in the book of Mark, chapter 1. invite you to turn there if you want to follow along. If you want to use a pew Bible, you can find it on page 812. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why are we starting our Advent series in the book of Mark? That is an odd place to begin, because Mark has no birth narratives. You'll find the stories of Jesus' birth in like Matthew and Luke. But but in the Gospel of Mark, you don't find any of that sort of stuff. But just like the Gospel of Mark, we are going to begin with the end in mind. Now, if you're the type of person who hates it when somebody just blurts out the end of a movie or a a book or a TV show, you're probably not going to like the book of Mark very much. (laughs) I had this friend uh, named Sean who did not watch movie trailers hated movie trailers, because he felt they gave away too much of the movie. And it's true, usually it's only the good parts of the movie that make it in the trailer, and you've kind of seen the good parts by the time you've seen the trailer. But he would always go to a movie late, or or he would go and get his snacks during the coming attractions. Now, I love the trailers, so I I thought he was insane, because it helps me to build the anticipation of the big big blockbusters coming out. But if you can relate to Sean, and you don't know the end of the Christmas story... Spoiler alert, okay? Here's your spoiler alert. Cover your ears if you don't want to hear how it ends. Maybe now's the time to go get your snacks. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Just blurts it out. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. And in Jesus Christ, God did the most relational thing ever. God came and was found in the form of a baby. A baby who grew into a man. Who you could know and see and hear. And who would one day fulfill the promise. Who would fulfill the proclamation of hope through his life. And ultimately through his death and his resurrection. But there had been a 30 year pause. By the time of the writing of Mark's gospel, about a 50-year pause had happened. From the time of the birth to the start of the ministry, about 30 years, and then another many years beyond that. And so Mark begins by reminding the people about the promise. But he also reminds them about the proclamations of hope that came well before the arrival of Jesus. And that's what he goes to in verse 2 and 3. When he says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you. Who will prepare your way? A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. See, generations earlier, prophets had foretold that God would send a messenger, a a heralder, ahead of the arrival of the Messiah, who Mark has just claimed is Jesus Christ. And this was customary of the day. You see, in that day, before a king or a person of notoriety would, would visit a region, they would send a messenger or a heralder to the towns to let people know it was about to happen. That gave them time to ensure that their, their, their houses were in order, if you will, before he arrived. And, and we can understand this, right? If, if you suddenly found out that Nadine and I are coming over for lunch, you got about an hour, hour and a half, until we're going to be there. I have a feeling that you would appreciate the warning ahead of time so you could run home and do that flight of the bumblebee clean that you're, you're probably going to want to do in anticipation of our arrival. And see, John here is calling the people to get their inner house, to, to get their personal houses, their personal lives in order, to remove any obstacles, to remove any barriers that might prevent the arrival of the Messiah into their lives. To ensure that their hearts are ready to receive him, to prepare themselves, because the great and powerful king is coming, and he wants to visit with them. And so this messenger that goes out ahead, this voice of the one calling in the wilderness with a message of hope and preparation, and if you're familiar with the, with the story and with the scriptures, you know that that was John the Baptist. And in Mark's gospel, John, he just appears. John just appears out of nowhere, just out of the blue in the Bible, in Mark's gospel. We find his origin story in the book of Luke, however. And very, very briefly, in the gospel of Luke, we learn that John the Baptist is the older cousin of Jesus. But he's also part of God's plan. You see, because before the angel arrived to announce to Mary that she was going to give birth to Jesus, the angel first appeared to a priest named Zechariah and said, Zechariah, you are going to have a son, and you are to name him John, and he is going to have purpose. He is going to have a significant role to play in the work that God is starting to do. And we read this in Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where it says, John, your son, Zachariah, he will bring many people back to the Lord. He will be there to, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And if we jump back into Mark chapter 1, we read this in verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. Now when John arrives on the scene, everything about him, from his appearance to his message, is utterly countercultural. His lifestyle is not the type of thing that you would find in Home and Garden magazine. (laughs) You're probably going to find it more in the camping section of a Cabela's catalog. His appearance would not make the cover of GQ. This fashion, this winter, is camel hair and belts is in style. And his message certainly would not be approved to be on a billboard in the city of Edmonton. Because it was a call to change and it was a call to something meaningful. But Mark tells us that people flocked to go see him. It tells us that the whole countryside, all of Jerusalem went out to see him. Now we know that's hyperbole. Like, like, it wasn't like the streets of Jerusalem were, were desolate and empty because they all went to the desert. But, but what Mark's trying to communicate here is that John the Baptist was the talk of the town. Everyone was talking about him. And multitudes of people went out to see him. And it begs this question. What would cause people to make what amounts to a 20-mile journey to go into the desert? Like This isn't just a quick little day trip, an afternoon, afternoon journey to the desert, kids. This is a major undertaking to go this 20-mile journey into the desert to go see this eccentric messenger. They would have to leave their responsibilities behind at home for a few days, pack up the family, gather the food and the supplies needed to go out there to see this eccentric messenger. Why would they do that? And I think, and this is what I'm going to pack for us, I think it's because of this. Because John's wilderness life and message spoke to the wilderness that was inside of them. You follow that? I think John's wilderness message and life spoke to the wilderness that was inside each of them. Here's what I mean by that. Remember I mentioned before that the forefathers of this people had heard from God through prophets and and through the presence of God amongst the people. But there had been this 400-year pause. Angels and shepherds had talked about this incredible hope that was found in the birth of Jesus. But then there was this 30-year pause. And what happens in the pauses? Well, hope can really start to run dry in those pauses. And I think in our day, we're becoming increasingly familiar with the pauses in life, aren't we? We've become so accustomed in these past few decades to this this world of instant gratification. I can go on Amazon right now and have pretty much anything delivered to my house by tomorrow. I can go home and watch any movie I want on demand. I can load a website like that. Remember back in the days when it was like, remember those days? If it did that now, what are you doing? Refresh, nope, gone, next. Instant gratification is what we'd be accustomed to. But then it changed. As we're now entering into our second COVID Christmas, we've been told to, uh, to pause travel. We've been asked to, to pause gathering together in a certain fashion. We're hearing increasingly about pauses that are taking place within transportation routes, and it's causing challenges with receiving goods that we become so accustomed to just simply being available. I even heard this week about a, a guy who ordered an Advent calendar for his family an advent calendar for his family in the arrival of this. He's been told he has to wait. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was hilariously ironic that he has to anticipate the arrival of the calendar that anticipates the arrival. And so they should send him a calendar for the calendar, so he can anticipate the arrival of the calendar for the arrival, calendar he's waiting for. To arrive. Anyways, this is the <laughs> things are changing, and these pauses are enough to make somebody lose hope. And I, and I do find in pockets of society there seems to be this growing crisis of hope where we find ourselves wandering into this wilderness of resigning ourselves to hopelessness. Now, this wilderness carries many meaningful images for the people of Israel. And perhaps we can relate to some of those too when we consider the, the wilderness of hopelessness that some people these days are finding themselves wandering into. You see, the wilderness is never been considered a place of hope. Right? It's not what we think about. It's associated with a place of struggle, literally and figuratively. Literally, the wilderness is a harsh environment. Very little grows out there. Very little can survive in these deserts. And yet that's where the ancestors of the Israelites wandered. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. Figuratively, deserts are places of struggle. Figuratively, places where where your, your spirit can run dry. Deserts and wilderness, if you hear somebody say, I'm in kind of in a desert season in my life, they're probably referring to the fact that they're facing tough questions about their relationship with themselves, with, with other people, with their faith, questions of relationship with God. Deserts are harsh places, literally and figuratively. And yet, ironically, that's the history of the Israelite people wandering and struggling in the wilderness, and that's where they look to for hope. And when we understand why they look to that for hope, I think we can begin to understand where we find hope. You see, those who responded to John's call went to the wilderness. And they found that wilderness is where hope begins. God had led the Israelites for a generation into the wilderness, into the desert, where he cared for them. He protected them. He provided them for 40 years. And then he led them into the promised land. And during that season, they survived that harsh environment. And and, and they wrestled with God for moments. And they suffered losses in the midst of that harsh environment. But in it all, God proved himself to be trustworthy and faithful. And that's why they can look back and say, you know what? In the midst of this literal and physical and, and, and metaphoric place of struggle, that is where I found the faithfulness of God to our people. And in the midst of that, it became a source of hope for them. You see, the journey towards hope, even in our own lives, begins in a place of need, and it begins in a place of crisis. And even the understanding, the definition of hope, presumes this. Because the desire for hope is conditional upon the presence of challenge and the absence of hope. Think about that for a second. The desire for hope is conditional upon the presence of challenge. Consider it this way. If you are financially stable, if you have sufficient funds in the bank, you never have a thought or a prayer that says, I hope the payment goes through. Because you already know it will. If you are healthy, you never have to say, I hope for good reports from the doctor. I, I hope for a miracle. Because you're already healthy. If, if you're happily married, you never have to wait one day. I, I hope God gets a hold of my husband. and you know You don't have to... Hope for those things because you're already experiencing it. If you've, ever had a, if you've never had a problem, you're just being content in life. You don't feel that deficit of hope in your life. But let's be honest. That's not real life, right? Like everybody goes through these challenges. It's been famously said that everybody in this world is either in a crisis, coming out of a crisis, or there's one just around the corner. So welcome to West Meadows. We want to lift your spirits and brighten your day here this Christmas season. Bet you glad you came. But this is just the beginning. This is where it begins. It begins in the crucible of crisis and challenge. You see, because in the midst of challenge, whether it be health-related, relational, financial, with the kids, whatever the cause or the catalyst of that challenge may be, that's where the desire for hope begins. That's where the awareness that something is not as it should be. That's where it begins. And when we find ourselves in the midst of these wilderness moments, in these wilderness seasons, we face a choice. We either sit down in the desert and allow our spirits to run dry and lose hope. Or we can begin to see that the wilderness is also the staging ground for God's victory. And that's where we begin to find hope. See, in our wilderness moments, if you've ever been on one of these these challenging moments where you feel like you're metaphorically in the wilderness, you know that in those times you are not on your game. You you are feeling weak internally and spiritually and emotionally, and and your resolve will be dropping low. And that's, that's when we face battles with the enemy. Isn't it? Isn't it when the enemy comes seeking us out, that, that roaring lion prowling, looking for something weak to feast upon? It's in those moments when we're low that we enter into these battles with the enemy. And whenever we're feeling like we're lacking something in life, we start looking for things to place hope in. And, and the things of this world we might start looking to place hope in to fill these voids we have, to calm these fears we have, make us vulnerable. They make us vulnerable to things like temptation and sinful appetites and, and, and even to the lies of discouragement. And if we listen to these, it leads us to want to indulge. Well, I'm not feeling very good. I'm feeling empty, so I'll go shopping, even though I can't afford it, but it'll make me feel happy for a moment. I'm wrestling with these emotions and the pain of the past, so I'll just indulge in some substances to numb it for a time. I'm feeling disconnected. I'm feeling unworthy. I'm feeling separated. And so people will indulge in things like pornography to to escape for a while. I'll indulge in building success for my life because then I'll have worth. And, And these are the things that people seek after to bring some hope. Things of the world that promise they will satisfy. But those of us, all of us have chased after one or more of these things in our times. And we know that they never do actually satisfy. And, and the battle continues. And when the battle continues, we get weary. And when we get weary, we lose hope. And if we lose hope, we enter into a season of hopelessness. you ever gone down that path? I want to ask you to raise your hand right now. But I can just say this. Every hand would go up. Because we've all in some fashion, in some way, at some time gone down that path. But, uh, but when we place our hope in God, and we place our hope in the promise of His victory, we then find ourselves at a point where we can stop fighting in our own strength. And rather we, rather than fighting in our own strength, whatever the challenge may be that we're wrestling with, we can start to choose to find hope in the promises of Scripture. Promises like, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. That can give us hope. Promises like Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest, can give us hope. Promises like in 2 Corinthians when it says, I delight in weakness, I delight in insults, I delight in hardships, I delight in difficulties, not because I like the desert, because it makes me know when I am weak, and when I am weak, I know where I can turn, I can turn to the one who is strong. These are statements and promises that cannot coexist with our mentality of saying, everything's okay, I can handle it on my own. They don't coexist with those statements. Rather, these promises can be claimed only when we say it is not okay. But that's okay. Because my hope is in Jesus and hope is here with me. You see, the wilderness is not just the beginning place of hope. It is also the staging ground of hope. And it then becomes the proving ground where hope is strengthened and fortified. Have you ever uh, gone to the ocean or maybe to the West Edmonton water park and played in the waves? I, I've watched people do this, and I've done it with my own kids when they were small. have maybe you've, maybe you've played a similar game where we would stand there with our, our back to the waves, kind of ankle deep, and just sort of let the wave hit you. And even the smallest, you know, smallest of the children can withstand those first waves ankle deep. And then after the first wave comes through and you're strong enough, you take a step back. And then you're a little bit deeper and the wave gets a little bit bigger. And then slowly one by one, the kids start to fall. Dad wins every time, right? Because that's why Dad made the game. And so you just keep stepping back and back. And as the process goes on, eventually the wave gets so big it just knocks you over. But if you do a couple of rounds, you start to find that you can actually go further than you went last time. Because as you learn, you learn your balance. You learn how to how to lean, how to how to grow strong in your footing. And you can begin to get into deeper and deeper waters by doing that. Anyone ever, ever done this? Or am I just like crazy dad? No? I'm crazy grandpa now. Though. I can do it. I can do it again in the future here. <laughs> Lydia would get knocked over right away. She's a little still. So you know, in my life, I've had the opportunity to disciple people as they go through their periods of difficulty. And, and I watch kind of the waves of life just crash into them. And sometimes they appear very, very strong, very very spiritually mature. And the challenges of life hit them like a wave, and, and at various points will knock them over. There are some people I've walked with, and they can endure a few waves. They, they have a bad business deal at work. Okay, I can still stand. I... I it's causing stress, and I got into a fight with my wife, still, still standing, but getting a little shakier. Then the car repair bill comes in and crash, just wipes them out. Uh, other people I've walked with for a while, I'm actually surprised how quickly they fold. It's like, it's like the first wave hits, and we find out just how fragile their faith actually was. But here's the thing. When the waves of life overwhelm us and knock us down, what's one of the first casualties? Our hope. Our hope is one of the first things that we tend to lose in those moments. But when we stand strong in the power of Jesus Christ, not in our own power, we begin to build resilience. We begin to find our footing in the midst of these things. You know, I think that's one reason that God in the Bible called people intentionally into the wilderness. See, the wilderness wasn't a punishment the, the wilderness for many people wasn't a, wasn't a well, I, 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 can't, I, don't want, I don't want to see you right now. Go to, go to your room. Go to the wilderness for a while. It, that wasn't the nature of the wilderness in Scripture. God intentionally called people in the wilderness. We see this in, in Jacob and the Israelites and, and Elijah and Jesus and others. We're intentionally called into these wilderness experiences where they faced the weakening of their bodies. Resolve where they felt the distress of trying to endure the wilderness experience on their own, but it began to build hope. In those moments, it was the beginning of hope. Because when they then faced the temptations and the doubts, this was the staging ground of where they had to make a choice. And it made them choose to either trust in themselves where they could potentially collapse, but in these cases of Scripture, it forced them to wait on the Lord to place their hope in him. And through that, they were able to grow in their trust of him. They were able to grow in their walk with him, and they emerged stronger. It was a difficult, stressful experience to go through, no doubt. I've never spent 40 days in the wilderness with no food. Never done it. Don't want to. I can just imagine how difficult that would be. But as we look at those in the Scripture who did, we see that they emerged with these lessons to keep your eyes upon God. They emerge with this formative moment of faith building where it was fortified and strengthened and they emerge finding God is good. God is trustworthy. God is faithful. I can withstand those waves of life because in him is where I find my hope. See, when the people of Jerusalem and Judea went out to see John in the wilderness, when they arrived there, This was, in in essence, the message that they heard. The message they basically heard was, get ready. Get your lives ready. Not because life's going to get easy, but because hope is coming. And hope is coming for you. And that's essentially what he says in verse 7 and 8 as we look at the final verses for today. It says, verse 7, this was the message John gave them. After me comes one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, at the heart of John's message was this call to repent. It was this call to change where we look for hope. And that's kind of what baptism's about. Baptism is this, this this outward visible act that people participate in that is symbolic of an inward spiritual change. Does that make sense? Baptism is this outward physical expression symbolic of an inward spiritual change that has taken place. And that would be true of a person who had hoped in themselves or had hoped in the things of this world, who had found that that was fleeting, but then her- heralded John's message and changed their heart, oriented it back with turning towards God. That would be an outward expression of an inward change that took place within them. And John said, I have this baptism offering to you right now in the wilderness. It's a baptism of water and preparation. It's a baptism that is symbolic of the changing of your heart, the softening of your heart that needs to take place as you confess your waywardness and begin to turn back towards God. And this baptism they could undertake of this baptism of water and preparation was a response to his call to get your house in order. Anticipate the one who's coming to visit, because Jesus is on his way and he's coming into your life. This baptism John offered did not make them forgiven of their sin. It did not put them in a the point where they no longer needed Jesus, but it opened their lives up. It opened their hearts up. It prepared their hearts to receive him. Because Jesus then came afterwards with a baptism of the Holy Spirit in completion were those voids that had been created by turning from the things of this world, by by no longer hoping in those things. It created a void, a space within their lives, within their hearts, as they turned from those sinful things that could be then filled by the Holy Spirit. And that's something that all people to this very day still need. Because every single one of us has sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory, of his character, of his plans for our lives. We've all done things that we know are wrong. We've all had wrong things done to us. We've all trusted in the wrong things. We've all put our hope in things that are contrary to God. And, and the result of this is sin. And sin causes the separation between us and God, this chasm that exists that we cannot cross. But we are created for relationship with God. We're created to be those who would reflect His character, His holiness to the world around us. And so God did the most relational thing ever. God appeared as a baby in a manger when Jesus came to make the way. A baby born to reveal God to the world. We're at the end of the pause that happened from his birth to the beginning of his ministry. He then went to the cross to pay the price for our sins that created that chasm. And he became our hope by bridging the gap. He accomplished that upon the cross when he gave his life in our place. When he paid the price that we could not. When he gave himself upon the cross and paid the price with his life for our sin. But then God raised him to new life. And Jesus becomes the gift of hope. Jesus becomes the one we can receive who brings hope. And we can then become identified in his hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is an inheritance that will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. Folks, this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, as we begin with the end in mind. Because he is the living hope for all people. As I close today, and as we enter into this Christmas season, I just want to ask you this question. Do you have hope? Or have the things and the situations of this world, those waves just knocked you over? And what are you looking to for hope? Because many of us have hoped in the wrong things. We've hoped in ourselves, we've hoped in our accomplishments, we've hoped in other people, and in the material, worldly things that the world promises will fulfill us, will fill us up. But in the end, when we trust in these things, we find that they're not able to live up to the promises that they make. And so we search for more and more and more, but it's like trying to hold the the beach in your hand, it just slips through your fingers. Many of us have also had the wrong idea about hope. We think, I will finally have hope when I have a life that is free of challenge. That's what I hope for. Has anyone ever had such a life? As we've learned and talked about today, the nature of hope presumes challenge. But that's not the end of hope. It's just the beginning of hope. And many have lost hope. Because they've hoped in the wrong things. They've, they've had the wrong idea about hope. And because of that, they've never been able to hang on to it. They've never been able to grasp it. But I want you to hear this and know this today as we begin the season of Advent. Hope is real. Hope is here. Hope is available to you. And our hope is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? And this is the hope that we hope you are reminded of and can have this Christmas season and beyond. If you do not have this hope in your life right now, I invite you to receive it today. Receive it today. You can do so if you're online, but there's a button there you can click to to raise your hand and receive Christ, or you can click to pray with somebody. If you're on site here, come talk to me after service, or simply join me in a word of prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the true source of hope. God, right now I pray for those who, who are going through challenging struggles and seasons of the unknown, God, I pray for those who are walking in those desert moments right now that they would not feel like they are on their own or have to trust in their own strength. God, I pray those, whatever those deserts may be defined as, God, I pray that they would stop and lift their eyes to you. Understand that you are the one who came to bring hope. You are the true hope. You are the one who is good and true and trustworthy. God, I want to pray for them right now. If there's anybody here in that situation, we don't do this often, but feel free to raise your hand, I just want to pray for you right now. Those who are in a moment of needing to hope in Christ. Thank Thank you. Lord, for those who have acknowledged you, Lord, I pray whatever their unique situations are, that you would just speak and minister uniquely to each one. That you would remind them that you love them. To remind them you have never left them nor forsake them. That you, you, you love them to the point where you gave it all, your very life. That they may have hope with you. Be the path that they walk this season, Lord. And for those who are here who have not received Christ, know that they need to make that change because without him, there is no hope. You can pray with me right now. Thank you, Jesus. For paying the price for my sin. Without you, I was searching for hope. But because of you, I have found it. As you gave your life for me, I now give you mine. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.